Okay. Okay, I think I'm going to have to start, otherwise we're going to run out of time with the other speaker. This talk should be shorter than the other one. Um, so I'm going to speak about uh, some, I'm going to talk about effective use of antimicrobials in the ED. I'm going to have, I'm going to have you uh, learn some things that aren't even in the books, that even young ID specialists don't even know, how you might use antibiotics different than what it says in the book and still be, be okay. And okay. <laughs> And there'll be a, quite a few pointers to start up with. First of all, let's look at some, uh, a few pointers about antibiotics. The, the penicillins and cephalosporins, right? A lot of them come orally. There's no upper limit on the oral dose. You can give it one time, massive dose. The only side effect is nausea and vomiting. It's not like toxic. So <clears throat> if you're starting, if a patient that you're going to discharge needs an oral antibiotic, uh, beta-lactam like amoxicillin or cephalexin in the ED, and it's not like a minor thing like strep throat, like it's a soft tissue infection, a dental infection. If you're going to give them an oral antibiotic, give them double the usual starting dose, which means if you're going to give cephalexin in the ED for somebody with a soft tissue infection, you're not going to give them IV or anything. Give them 1,000 milligrams. There's no upper limit. It just causes more nausea if you get more of it. No, this is the one dose in the ED. Now you're going to be in a prescription, okay? You could give a lot more. So starting dose, if you're going to give cephalexin in the ED for like uh, soft tissue infection and not giving an IV antibiotic and you're getting a prescription later, give them 1,000 milligrams. Same thing for amoxicillin. If you're treating a bad soft tissue infection around the mouth, you might, if you're discharging without giving IV antibiotics, give higher doses. In fact, we used to use amoxicillin at 3 grams PO once for gonorrhea in the ED when it was sensitive to penicillin. And nobody, I now saw a single patient who vomited after that. So the other side effect is nausea and vomiting. So you at least give a high dose. What about augmentin? You're treating a bite wound infection or a dental infection that looks sick, but you're not giving them IV antibiotics and you're discharging them. You can't give too much. If you give too much augmentin, this clavulonate 125 causes a lot of vomiting. So you can't increase the dose. You can't give two augmentin pills. All augmentin pills have the same size amount of, of, of clavulonate, but they have different amounts of amoxicillin. So you can combine one amoxicillin with one augmentin pill together and still get the high dose amoxicillin. <coughs> so it might work better for soft tissue infections. Also, some children prefer chewables over liquids. So older children, let's say 8 or 10, they might used to be taking chewable vitamins. <coughs> they may not take liquids or pills, but they often take chewable forms uh, which come in often amoxicillin and augmentin come in a chewable, usually. I think it's on Exacare, or we still use that. Um, one more thing, I'll go to the bottom one first. Is back, back to the first slide. If you're going to give doxycycline to somebody in the ED orally and discharge them, give them 200 milligrams, not 100. Uh, <clears throat> doxycycline is a drug that's very lipid-soluble, unlike most antibiotics, which are mainly water-soluble. So the first few doses all get taken up by the fat compartment of the body. So there's very low blood levels for days, uh, especially for five half-lives, which is like you take it every, like two and a half days, you get very low levels unless you give loading doses. And so if you're going to give oral doxycycline to somebody in the ED, 
whether it's PID or whether it's a soft tissue like a MRSA infection, give them at least 200 milligrams, okay? And then give them the 100 Q12 to take home. Also, <clears throat> if for some reason you need a parental antibiotic for someone, but they can't, they won't allow an IV or you don't need one or whatever, <clears throat> cefazolin, ceftriaxone, and immunoglycosides, if you give them IM at the same dose you give them IV, it is 100% absorbed the same serum level within an hour as you would IV. So there's no particular benefit to having, having to give an IV unless you have to give it like IV fluids or something like or unless the nurse already started an IV to get the lab test. So especially if you can't get an IV line, poor veins, you can give all these antibiotics with the genomycin, ceftriaxone, or cefazolin or ANCEF, Kefzol, all IM, the same dose, like a gram or 120 of a genomycin. I am 100% effective. It's the same levels as the IV. What about clinda? clinda. Yeah, uh, I, I think <clears throat> I'll mention that now, but I have a section on clindamycin. So um, that doesn't give quite the same blood levels, but almost. And so the problem with the clinda parenteral is that it's very, it's not very concentrated. So uh, about the maximum size of an IM shot you can give to an adult is about three and a half to four mLs total. Once it's over that, it's, you really should split it. It's too much of a volume. So <clears throat> 450 milligrams is the, probably the biggest size of a single IM shot for Clinda. Um, and it's fairly bioavailable. So if you want to give them 600 IM, you, but you need to split it in two different shots. And it might end up being three mLs each shot. See, so it's, okay, so that's possible. It also is pretty well absorbed. So you can do IM Clinda, but don't order it 900 milligrams IM. The nurse will probably <laughs> give a syringe this big. <laughs> Okay, so you're prescribing liquid antibiotics for a child. Which, which taste the best and which taste the worst? Okay, these were all, this is lots of studies by pediatricians on this, but they all studied the brand names, not the generic products. And so the, this is well known among brand names, is that Cephalexin, Keflex, has the worst, by far the worst tasting oral suspension. And I think the generic probably does too. The problem is all these brand names of best tasting, the, the children really like them. They like the taste in blind taste tests. And so do the adults who are blind tasting them too. But the problem is when you get to the generic versions, you don't know what the flavor is going to be. And I don't know if it's the same or not. I, I can't tell you for sure. Uh, but I don't, know, I don't have a lot of complaints from parents when you prescribe amoxicillin, azithromycin, or augmentin. You know, it tends to be that parents say, oh, yeah, I've taken that. my kids have taken that before without a problem. But cephalexin, just smell it. Even the capsules smell bad. You, you, can't, you almost pass out when you smell a capsule <laughs> if, it's, if you open the bottle. So cephalexin, be careful on that. Uh, so so these, these taste pretty good and some of these taste bad. Also, if you, the parents say, well, they only like a certain flavor of an antibiotic. <clears throat> All pharmacies offer this service. If you look up a website, Flavorex, they have these different flavorings that it's, it's a proprietary preparation of a flavor. It adds about 2 to $4 for the prescription. So you can write, uh, like to take Cephalexin or something, uh, or something else, you know, or Cephprozil or something, uh, add cherry flavor Flavorex. And they'll add it, cherry flavor, but they'll add it to the bill several dollars more, maybe a filling fee for doing extra, so it may be $10 more, and, some and it's not covered by insurance plans. So, but for most of our patients, they might prefer it, but you can't add that. You can look up the website, and they'll say, oh, we have 20 flavors we can add, and we can disguise the flavor of anything. Even adults can, 
they don't like certain flavors and have to take liquids, they can take that. He has to be on, a, on the prescription with the antibiotic. I guess it's possible the, the mother could, the parent could ask, can you get another flavoring? Maybe the pharmacist could decide to put it in themselves. It's not a controlled substance or anything. Um, oh, here's a, there, what's, what's good ways to make, well, children won't take their, their oral antibiotics whether they taste good or not. They just won't take it sometimes. And um, what, what are some ways you can get them to take it? Ice cream. Ice cream or frozen yogurt. Yeah, this is very good because you, you have to take whatever, whatever ice cream or frozen yogurt, whatever they like. You take it, you have, you have to have these little dishes or little cups. So you take out a couple teaspoons of it frozen. You'll sort of melt it into a mush a little bit, like let it sit out over the microwave for a few seconds. Then you put one dose of antibiotic into each one and you freeze it again. So in, you don't, it doesn't even matter what the total volume is total. There's like three or four teaspoons of ice cream frozen with that five mLs of amoxicillin, then they eat the ice cream and they can't tell the flavor. But it means you have to have a different dish for each dose. <laughs> that works pretty well. You and then having it... That's a possibility, that eat all quart. But then you have to time how much they're going to eat each dose. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, this is often asked, including by Dr. Langdorf, comparing MICs, you have the, looking at the sensitivity pattern that they come back for E. coli, and you're looking at sensitive, sensitive, resistant, resistant, and you look at the numbers of the MIC, the numbers you see are the minimal inhibitory concentrations. Well, it looks like, looks like uh, trimethoprim sulfa is better here than piperacillin tazobactam are the numbers. You cannot compare one antibiotic to another. They probably shouldn't even have this on the, they should probably keep this hidden from anybody but an ID specialist or microbiologist. It's only good for comparing that particular organism for that particular antibiotic for other isolates from that particular antibiotic, okay? So because the MIC that you need to treat a bacteria is different for whatever antibiotic you use. Depends on the blood level and all that. So you can't compare looking at one lab slip and say, oh, this one has the lowest numbers, it's the best. Okay? Yet it says resistant, the one with the lowest number is resistant, the highest number is sensitive. That doesn't make sense, but it does when you realize you're not comparing these one drug to another. Also, you should do that, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so there's two ways that, an that uh, antibiotics kill bacteria, mainly. Um, so the penicillins and the cephalosporins and vancomycin, they have time-dependent, concentration-independent killing. And this is bad. You don't want that in an antibiotic. You want the other kind, which is mainly aminoglycosides, fluoroquinones, and metronidazole. So what's this bad about is that... <clears throat> There, there's an inhibitory concentration which the bacteria stopped growing, and there's a higher level which it's maybe killed if it's a bactericidal drug, for example. It's called the MBC. So when the, when the bacteria are exposed to that antibiotic at a level above the MIC, no matter if it's a thousand times or one and a half times, it doesn't be, it's not killed at a higher rate. So getting a really high dose all at once with a penicillin doesn't help kill the bacteria any, any faster, unlike the other drugs. Um, so anyway, that also means that once the antibiotic is gone, many of these beta-lactams have very short half-lives, like 25 minutes for penicillin, ampicillin, and cefazolin, or maybe it's an hour. So once they're out of the blood, and they may be totally out of the blood by the, by, by the end of, by the next dosing period, um, the, they have no effect on killing the bacteria. It's all gone. The bacteria is still growing again, okay? So that's not good. You don't want that. But most of antibiotics work that way. 
So what's one before you your question here? <clears throat> we commonly use piperacillin and tazobactam for many serious infections at UCI. <clears throat> it kills by this mechanism, but it has a very short half-life. It's like 30 minutes once you get it in. So we we're changing over the way we order it. It'll be automatic, whether you order it right, right or wrong. It's been shown that you can kill bacteria better with piperacillin and tazobactam and other beta-lactams by having a lower dose at a prolonged infusion. So now, in the future, I'm not sure when this starts, maybe even now, if you order piperacillin, this is only for this antibiotic first, piperacillin and tazobactam, the pharmacist may call you and say, can you lower the dose? We're changing the continuous infusion for two hours. So instead of giving it in 15 minutes, which is safe, and get a really high level all at once, which doesn't kill the bacteria any faster, and it's out of the system, it's out of your blood before the next dosage period, like six hours later, they're going to have it over a two-hour period at a lower dose, and it works just as what I say works better to kill the bacteria. And that's true of all beta-lactams, but the only one they're going to start this with UCI routinely is, uh, is Zosin. It's got an automatic substitution. So the, the bacteria that are killed by these antibiotics have a different mechanism. It's the kind you really want, although these have more toxicity. Uh, but not because of the way they kill bacteria. So what happens with these aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones, metronidazole is that once you get above the MIC and keep going higher and higher, the bacteria are killed at a much faster rate as the, comparing on the level. And in fact, when you wash the antibiotics out of the system, there's no antibiotic <coughs> around the bacteria. They keep dying. Even though there's no antibiotic at all, they can keep dying for four to six hours more depending on what kind of antibiotic it is, where that doesn't occur with the beta-lactams. So even if there's no antibiotic around the bacteria, they're still dying. Whereas the other ones with the beta-lactam, if they haven't been killed, they recover and they keep reproducing and growing when the antibiotic's away from the system. That's called a post-antibiotic effect. It occurs with some other antibiotics too, like tetracyclines, macrolides, linazolide, rifampin. So that there's no antibiotic there anymore, but the bacteria are still dying at a high rate for a few hours. Question? I was just curious, so then, you know, like your second slide when we're talking about double dosing caplanic for amoxicillin, but the half-life shorter and it goes away. So ah, but goes. it stays above the MIC longer because you have a higher, so if you get a higher dose, it takes longer to get it below the MIC, right? That's the main reason, okay. Uh, so, <clears throat> let's talk about something called the Eagle Effect, which is after, after Dr. Eagle, a microbiologist, I think he was a PhD years ago. So, many infections we treat that are in the blood and the urine, the bacteria are rapidly growing when they're in the blood and urine, right? As opposed to soft tissue spaces. So like E. coli in the blood from pylo or Staph aureus endocarditis or something, where it's only in the, mainly the blood phase we're kind of treat a lot. <clears throat> they're rapidly growing and beta-lactams work really well on the rapidly growing bacteria because the bacteria have to keep growing out of their cell wall to die. But what if they're not growing? They could be in a closed space, even the one that doesn't seem closed to you like pneumonia, peritoneum, a soft tissue infection, or an abscess. They're in the stationary phase of growth. You have billions of bacteria. They're growing really slowly or not at all, but they're still using their metabolic machinery to produce toxins, et cetera, and sepsis signs, et cetera. They are not killed well by beta-lactams or vancomycin because they're not growing rapidly. So, but if they're in the blood at the same time, they would be killed. So if you add an antibiotic that inhibits protein synthesis, if the bug is sensitive to it, for these stationary phase growth germs, bugs, 
essentially that might be better for that infection. Essentially all other antibiotics work that way, other than beta-lactams and vancomycin. The problem is the bug might not be sensitive to it, so then it won't work at all. But So the quinolones, tetracyclines, uh, aminoglycosides all work on the cell machinery of like on the ribosome and so forth and the mitochondria. So they will kill the bacteria even though they're not growing. And so it also stops toxin production. If they have a toxin, the toxins are produced by the ribosomes, they're like proteins, right? So they, they stop the toxin production, whereas the beta-lactam agents don't do that. For a lot of these serious infections, serious pneumonias and interperitoneal infections, you're using zosin as our main drug and sometimes adding banco. But it sounds like for that, I know because that's what the bacteria is sensitive, sensitive to. to it, it yeah. seems like we should maybe be using a different, maybe like more levoquins or four colonos. I know we avoid those. We yeah, um, maybe that's the case, but there's a problem you have to balance the side effects because the quinolones, for example, cause a lot of C. difficile and they induce resistance really rapidly. So there is a potential benefit to using those other drugs. But there could be, there could be some harm from their side effects. That's the problem. Okay. But if, let's say a patient is getting worse in front of you. Would you think about maybe using a fluoroquinolone that because it might work better on yeah. these sort of infections? I would, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about IM antibiotics. Try not to give IM antibiotics to diabetics, especially those who've had it for a few years because they have decreased blood flow to muscles and so they don't absorb them very well, okay? If someone was just diagnosed like last week, it's probably okay, but if they have a long-term diabetic, don't give them an IM antibiotic. It's better to give it orally than IM. Now, <clears throat> what's not commonly known by non-ID specialists, all the penicillins, uh, not so much the cephalosporids, pl inhibit platelets, just like Plavix or something. Although only when the bacteria is well, only when the platelet is exposed to it. But it's dose dependent, so you need grams and grams of it. So if you give somebody penicillin G, 24 million units a day, which you might for endocarditis, that's a, it's a, it inhibits platelets, but not at like two grams, or not at eight grams a day, or a million units. But what, which penicillin do we use at very high gram doses? It's zosin, piperacillin tazobactam. That's really the only one. We commonly give like four point five grams or 3.375, it's like four or three grams of that penicillin, that inhibits the platelets in that patient. And so if they're on other antiplatelet drugs, you gotta be careful, it's not a good choice. We've actually had clinical bleeding at UCI from patients put on Zosin who had normal platelets numbers, but were on another platelet inhibiting drug and, and bleeding. Uh, also, if they have a platelet count like under 20,000, I probably wouldn't use a high dose penicillin because it may cause bleeding. And ID specialists all know that, but I think another non, and pharmacists, but the non-ID specialists don't know that. If it's platelets, it's totally dose dependent on the higher dose of the penicillins. Another thing, we don't use much cefotidin. It's on the formulary. They often use it in prophylaxis and surgery here. It's a second generation cephalosporin with anaerobic coverage in the last 12 hours. It does induce a coagulopathy by directly affecting the coagulation pathway and can cause clinicative and bleeding in patients after surgery. And we've had occasionally every couple of years there's one patient who bleeds after some abdominal surgery and they attribute it to that. So it's not too common. But avoid uh, cefotitan, the second generation cephalosporin, which covers intra-abdominal infections for his treatment in somebody who already has a coagulopathy. Now how do we dose antibiotics? It's usually done by 
weight, but in many cases for adults, especially with beta-lactams, the dose we're giving is so big, it doesn't matter what the patient's weight is, right? So there's a standard dose for many beta-lactams, whether it's ceftriaxone, cefazolin, or uh, ampicillin, sobactam. We're essentially giving a very high dose anyway, so a, low, uh, a big person and a small person is reasonable, like with a normal range, could get the same dose. The problem is <coughs> people that are start out with a normal weight but have excessive body water from ascites or decompensated heart failure or trauma patients in the ICU who are healthy people getting hit by cars, they get all this fluid in the ICU and they might gain a lot of weight, it's water weight. <coughs> you need to make sure you dose their antibiotics by their actual weight, not their ideal body weight. So, because most antibiotics are distributed in the body water compartment, not the body fat compartment like doxycycline, it's the body water compartment. And so patients who have excessive body water, if they're dosed by weight, including the water, you're okay, but don't say, oh, this patient used to weigh 70 kilograms. He's in the ICU. I don't know what he weighs, but he's a demodist now. He has 90 kilograms, and it's all excess water. You have to dose him by the weight of the excess water. Otherwise, it's been shown you get low doses of, of, IV, of IV levels of antibiotics. And so use the body weight for people that are edematous with ascites. Make sure you use the actual body weight. What about obese patients? Uh, since most antibiotics are going to body water, uh, some go into the fat. But usually the body water ones don't go into the fat too much. So one clue, to, we have a lot of fat patients. And so if you want to know the dose, the pharmacists all know this exactly. There's formulas that you can tell you over the phone. You, they just figure it out for you. But if you have a 300-pound person who's like five foot eight and you want to give them an antibiotic, <coughs> um, then you might consider calling the pharmacist. But you can take, if you want to figure this out, you can take, if you look at their height and weight and figure out their actual ideal body weight might be, look at their real body weight, look at the difference, say its difference is 100 kilograms, take one-third of that and add that to the ideal body weight, you get the right dose. Okay, so it's about one-third of the fat weight. And you can often do that in your head where it isn't exact. Just add some extra dose for, drug for the fat, but you're not, taking, you're not dosing them by the total body weight. Otherwise, you're really overdosing them with antibiotics because it only goes into the body water. Now, what about the elderly? Remember, the elderly have, even though they're not obese-looking, they have a lower body water content and an increased body fat compartment. It's internal fat. It's not like external obesity. And so antibiotics are going into the body water compartment, which is a lower compartment. So they need less doses. They lower doses of antibiotics and less often. Less often because they often have abnormal creatinine clearance, even with normal serum creatinines. Okay? And most antibiotics, especially the beta-lactams, which you commonly use, or vancomycin, <coughs> are uh, excreted by the kidney even though they're not toxic to the kidney, they're excreted by the kidney. So elderly people with a creatinine of one, a 90-year-old with a creatinine of one probably has a creatinine clearance of 40. So you have to decrease the dose. Pharmacists can tell you this over the phone, what to dose them with. Also, um, elderly people, very elderly people over 75 have a, even though their liver functions well, and if you cut it open, it, like all the liver cells look normal, the mass of the liver is only about half. And so drugs that are metabolized by the liver may have decreased metabolism if they're very old because their total liver mass is low, even though the liver is normal. And so uh, which antibiotics are metabolized by the liver, which you might have to decrease the dose in either bad liver failure in a young person or a really old person with a normal liver. It's going to be clindamycin and metronidazole mainly. Right? 
Now let's look at where the beta-lactams, penicillin, cephalosporins, and carbapenems. Okay, penicillin V is really called phenoxymethylpenicillin. It's not the same as penicillin. It's a kind of a penicillin. And it's commonly listed in books. You could give it for toothaches, tooth infections, or strep throat. That's mainly it, or sometimes cellulitis. But it's not the same as penicillin G or amoxicillin. And I never write for it, although I've signed prescriptions if the, doctor, if the resident attorney wrote it out. It does not work as well for a more serious infection as penicillin G or amoxicillin orally. It's not as well absorbed, and the MICs for the bugs are not as good. So I would never personally write for penicillin V. If I'm thinking of giving somebody an oral penicillin that's narrow spectrum, I usually use amoxicillin because it's, it's better absorbed. It causes less diarrhea than ampicillin, and it's actually more active against uh, the penicillin-sensitive germs than any other penicillin. Amoxicillin is better than any other penicillin. Uh, ampicillin orally can be used orally, but it causes a lot of diarrhea, and it's not as well absorbed. So ampicillin, you're better off leaving it to be IV. Now, there's three kinds of penicillin you can give IM. The important thing to remember here is this one, benzathine penicillin G, are known as LA bicillin. Uh, if you, what are you going to order that for? And if you order it, you got to make sure that you see, this, you see the syringe that the nurse is about to inject. Because they often, before we had order entry uh, electronically, the nurses would often get the wrong kind of penicillin out of the refrigerator because they don't give it too often. So what do you, what do you order LA bicillin for? Syphilis. Syphilis strep throat, and preventing rheumatic fever recurrences. That's about it. Um, so I have seen this in the older days when we used to write the orders, and they used to keep these in the refrigerator in the ED, is they would get out, you'd write for benzathine penicillin, they'd get out aqueous crystalline penicillin, which is the IV form, which can be an IV. I am, and I had some patients get that. We had to go back and order the benzathine, because they gave the wrong type. Now that if it comes from the pharmacy, it's probably the right kind, but you might want to check the syringe. Uh, so amoxicillin is what I go for with oral penicillins, amoxicillin or amoxicillin clavulanate. Diclox. <clears throat> now, we don't, you don't see too much dicloxacillin used anymore, generic drug, but it's extremely effective against methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. In fact, it's the single best oral antibiotic for methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. It's better than Keflex. It's better than doxycycline or, or Bactrim. And why do we usually use Keflex for, or Cephalexin for these soft tissue infections? It's all advertising because Dicloxacillin became generic about the time that Keflex came out as a brand name product. This is like 20, 30 years ago. So it's heavily advertised. And so all the doctors switched from the drug that worked best to Keflex, which actually has been shown does not work as well as Dicloxacillin. So if you have a sensitivity back of Dicloxacillin, uh, methicillin-sensitive staph aureus of a skin infection or something, uh, you probably should, and you know that already, you probably should prescribe dicloxacillin rather than Keflex. They're both cheap. Uh, now, what if you have a very life-threatening methicillin-sensitive staph infection and you have the sensitivities back? You started vancomycin because you didn't know it was MRSA. Now it's back. You're an inpatient doctor or it's a follow-up in the ED. It's sensitive, and you want to you want to admit them. Give them an IV antibiotic for staph, semethicillin-sensitive staph infections. That's serious, life-threatening, like endocarditis. Always use nafcillin. It's been shown it works much better than cefazolin or vancomycin, or mortality if they're a really life-threatening staph infection. Yes. Did 
Pots is still widely available in pharmacies still? Oh, yeah, it is. Is it four times a day dosing? Yes. It's short of half-life, 30 minutes. And you, there's no upper limit on the dose. So uh, when I was in my training in ID, it was common to treat people with staph aureus and uh, osteomyelitis as outpatients with four grams a day orally, one gram every six hours for weeks. They'd hardly get any side effects, and it would work just as well as the IV. They'd go home from the hospital with it. They'd be admitted for a few days on nafsil, and they'd go home on Diclox. And you still have some patients I've seen on that, yeah. It's like Keflex, though. They both have short half-lives. So let's look at the newer penicillins. Ampicillin sulbactam is unison, but it's generic. IV only, piptazo, zosin is only IV. You can't give them IM, at least in the preparations we have at UCI. So it's important to remember that <clears throat> these two drugs cover every clinically important anaerobic bacteria, except C. difficile, which you don't really treat with these IV antibiotics anyway, right? So there's no reason to add clindamycin or metronidazole for anaerobic coverage if somebody's getting one of these two drugs. You're not adding anything. You're only adding side effects. There's no benefit. Okay? So I've seen occasional patients for abdominal infection, they're getting piptazo and then a metronidazole. It doesn't make, it's not on any of our pathways. It doesn't make any sense unless you're trying to improve amoebagliverab so with metronidazole. Um, so there's no reason to add another anaerobic drug. Okay? So these are both active against all the methicillin-sensitive staph, streptococcal, from pneumococcus to group A strep, some enterococci, and many of the community-acquired GNRs, gram-negative rods, and piptazo would cover more than ampicillin sulbactam. But they're not active against these ESBL organisms, extended beta-lactamases, which you have to use a carbapenem, okay? So even if you think of zosin as a very broad-spectrum drug, it's not going to work against these newer um, resistant bacteria, which are usually not pseudomonas, usually E. coli and Klebsiella. And uh, it'll usually show on the uh, lab slip intermediate to piptazo, but that means it's actually resistant. They shouldn't put that on there. Intermediate is bad. That's usually resistant. It doesn't work in vivo. That's usually seen in patients who have been in nursing homes or been in hospitals. So let's look at oral cephalosporins. Yes. Uh, well, if the bug is sensitive to it, it doesn't matter which one you're using, just that the zosin covers more organisms. But if it's a community-acquired infection, the patient hasn't been in a nursing home, been in a hospital in three months, they haven't been on any antibiotic for anything, unison should be effective for intra-abdominal infections, soft tissue infections like diabetic foot infections, head and neck infections. Okay. Cephalexin I mentioned earlier doesn't work as well as dicloxacillin. It's pretty well absorbed, you have to, but it has a short half-life of like 30 minutes. You have to give it four times a day. Although for some patients, maybe for urinary tract infections, you could give it less often since it's contrary in the urine. Cefuroxime is, a, uh, is an oral generic second-generation cephalosporin. Actually, it's in several guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia to give it orally. But even, but even though it's very safe, it's expensive even generically, and many health plans don't cover it. So I probably haven't prescribed that in a long time. Ceftonir is one that I prescribe more and more often. It's a third-generation oral cephalosporin that's active against many gram-positives as well as gram-negatives. It has a good-tasting suspension for children. It's, Tastes great less filling? Yeah. It's good for kids with, with uh, pyelonephritis, and it's well-described as a good treatment for that when you don't have the sensitivities back. It's also, I've given to adults with pyelonephritis who I thought might have resistance because they were on amoxicillin a week ago or something. Um, and it comes as a pill twice a day or a liquid like twice a day. And it tastes good. 
and it's actually generic and it's pretty inexpensive. Cefazolin you give for staph aureus and strep infections, yet it's not as effective as nafcillin. Cefoxidin, we have it on the formulary for intradominal infections. You could use it for peritonitis if you wanted to. Unfortunately, a few, a few anaerobes are now resistant, and it has to be given four times a day like Zosin, so why not give Zosin anyway? So um, Cefatitan we have on the formulary. It's usually for, for surgical prophylaxis, for abdominal infection, for abdominal surgery, so we don't use it much in the ED. Cefataxime is our formulary drug of choice for a third-generation cephalosporin on a patient we're admitting, as opposed to ceftriaxone, which you can use instead, but it's not preferred. And why is cefataxime preferred over ceftriaxone for patients who are admitted, so they can get it frequently? It's the same activity against bacteria. What? Yes, so ceftriaxone uh, is excreted in the biliary tract from the blood. And so in the, in the intestinal tract, so you get massive amounts in the intestinal tract of ceftriaxone. And what does that do to the bacterial flora? If you culture somebody's stool after they've been a week of ceftriaxone, the only thing that grows out of it is candida or yeast and you C. difficile. <laughs> so that means they're predisposed in the hospital to getting resistant bacteria. Cefataxime is excreted by the kidney and has n almost no levels in the intestinal tract. So Dr. Lori Thrupp, the senior guy here in ID and antibiotics, knows this. And so even though comparative trials show no difference in outcomes, uh, it may prevent other infections, resistant infections, by using cefataxime, but it has a short half-life of like 30 minutes. So you give it every six hours or even every four. One more thing about this, it has low protein binding, so you get much higher levels in the CSF for meningitis, although it has made no clinical difference in studies they've looked at, right? So, I think if we were going to be keeping somebody in the ED for several days and, and ordering the stuff, I think it makes a lot more sense to go with the cefataxime. But one dose in the ED as they're going upstairs, while it might not be the most academically uh, correct thing to do, probably either one of these aren't going to affect outcome. One dose of cefataxime is probably not going to give a C-dip. If they're right. going to continue to get that in the I think you're, you're right. I've seen this, in, before we had computer order entry, I've seen this. Patients get ceftriaxone from the ED for pilo. They're admitted, and the doctor orders cefataxime six hours later, and they get it every six hours, even though the ceftriaxone is still working. Now, that may not be a problem with electronic ordering now. The pharmacists pick it up. They can see it on the computer. So that's all right. You can use ceftriaxone or hospital. Un it's not restricted. Use it anytime, inappropriately or appropriately. But... <laughs> But uh, there are some advantages to cefataxime uh, in patients admitted. And it's on our pneumonia pathway and our abdominal pathway is cefataxime, not ceftriaxone, for inpatients, okay? Cefepime, we're using more and more of this, a fourth generation IV only cephalosporin. Uh, and now it's on the pneumonia pathway. It just was added a couple months ago on the pathway for patients admitted to the ICU. Uh, and they're not penicillin allergic. And they're, so they're pseudomonas risk. That is pseudomonas risk, not penicillin allergic. Cefepime instead of Zosin. Either one's now on the pathway. Uh, so it's essentially you should reserve cefepime for suspected resistant infections because it covers more gram negatives, but it's about the same for gram positives as cefataxime and ceftriaxone. Still, uh, remember, none of these drugs cover MRSA. And the only one, any one of these covers pseudomonas, cefepime is the only one that might cover it, right? So a highly resistant infection, you suspect pseudomonas or a nursing home or MRSA, uh, you're not going to be giving these drugs unless you give cefepime and vancomycin, or then you wouldn't give these drugs. Just a question. On cefoxidin, um, otherwise healthy person comes in with an appy and they want to cover with antibiotics. 
in that situation, even though there are some resistant organisms, you have something like that's probably polymicrobial, not a true systemic infection. Yeah, you can still use cefoxidin, but I'd probably ask the surgeon what their choice is. Yeah. Right, right, right. And usually a healthy person who's not immunosuppressed. It's fairly safe. Uh, so let's go on to some carbapenems. These are ones we're using more and more of because of resistant organisms. So in the ED, when they use them, you're usually admitting somebody because they're fairly sick, and you may let the, ask the admitting team what they want to use. But personally, I think this one. Ertapenem or Invance is, could be very useful in emergency medicine. It is to me because I, uh, I can write for restricted antibiotics. So this is restricted to UCI except for intra-abdominal. It's on our abdominal pathway. A, you can use it as an equal alternative to uh, cefotaxime and metronidazole. Unrestricted as long as you're right using for intra-abdominal infection. Um, and it's usually for mainly non-hospital acquired, non acquired infections. But it lasts for 24 hours. And so uh, I have been using this for patients I'm discharged with severe soft tissue infections where you might use unison for IV. It only lasts six hours. Uh, giving, I've given that for diabetic foot infections, discharging them and having them, you know, giving them oral antibiotics to take later. And, and also for, for diverticulitis I'm discharging, I've given that a few times. IV ertapenem. And you probably, you can't write for that unless you call the ID fellow, but... <clears throat> Um, I suppose you could if it was diverticulitis for one dose, but it lasts 24 hours in the blood, uh, unlike any other IV antibiotic that you could give for this. Uh, I suppose you could give ceftriaxone for diverticulitis, but you're not covering the anaerobes very well. Question? No. <laughs> it's good against uh, strep as well? Yes, it's good for MSSA, yeah. group A strep, enterococcus that's penicillin sensitive. And it's good for most of these gram-negative rods. And it's, it covers all the anaerobes except T. difficile, okay? And it's well described. It works for these diabetic foot infections very well. Yeah. And the problem is it's expense. It's not as expensive as some others. It, it costs the hospital about $40 to buy a gram of it, which isn't too bad. But uh, these other two, we have meropenem on the formulary as the one for pseudomonas here because uh, it causes less side effects than... Primaxin, which causes seizures, and uh, it was cheaper. That's the main thing. So these are equally in books, Primaxin or Meropem, for highly resistant infections. People come from nursing homes. You're covering, but every anaerobe is covered except T. difficile. No reason for metronidazole here or clindamycin. So uh, if somebody comes in really sick from a nursing home and they have been on antibiotic fluoroquinolones already, uh, I would give them vancomycin and meropenem. But it's restricted. Meropenem, you have to call the ID fellow. Uh, so they're all pretty active against these infections, uh, but also active against these zosin-resistant infections, too, and very high tissue levels. Now let's talk about macrolids for a few minutes here. They're, uh, we use these commonly. I personally recommend only of the three macrolids only using azithromycin. There's no advantage to any of the other ones for routine infections. Some age-related infections you give biaxin or clorithromycin. Erythromycin works pretty well, but it has lots of side effects. We used to give it commonly. People would vomit after one dose. Had to be admitted to the hospital because of the vomiting. <laughs> um, so it works pretty well for these atypical infections. Um, but with zithromycin, remember, if someone would normally treat with a penicillin, they're allergic to it, uh, this zithromax is not necessarily the drug of choice a second. Uh, choice depending on what infection because some group A strep are resistant now. 
So it may not be a good, the best alternative for strep throat. Some staph aureus that are methicillin sensitive or resistant. So I would not use it for cellulitis or strep pharyngitis unless there's no other antibiotic choice you could give. Then you have to follow the patient carefully. And also, this is not commonly known by other people other than ID specialists. For every treatable bacterial cause of enteritis that, that antibiotics indicated for, the treatment of choice is adistromycin now, not any quinolone. It's well described. There's even a review article in the New England Journal. And so if you have a treat, it's a treatable cause. Like if you want it in, and you want to treat them, Shigella, Campylobacter. If it's a Salmonella that needs treatment, I'm not sure if you need treatment for that. Um, if it's E. coli uh, uh, bacteria producing toxins, toxigenic E. coli, if you're going to treat them, Zosin, I mean, Zithromax is the treatment of choice, kids or adults. And it's not clear that you need more than one dose. My personal opinion is it's so highly concentrated in this GI tract that I give one gram in the ED for Campylobacter, whereas the books, they've never been studying how long you need to give it. They recommend the standard dose in the books, the articles, but I usually give one dose, even for kids. It's even controversial we need to treat them. What? I usually give them one gram, once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm almost done here. Tetracyclines. We usually only use doxycycline, right? Not tetracycline. Uh, but the lab slip, when you get a sensitivity, it says tetracycline. It's not the same as doxycycline. Some bugs that are resistant to tetracycline are sensitive to doxycycline, even though it's the same class. And there's no way to tell. Um, Doxycycline is, we're using it more and more because most MRSA are susceptible. So about 90% of our isolates in our ED are susceptible to, to doxycycline. This has a very long half-life, and I mentioned earlier it's very lipophilic. So when you start giving it the low dose of 100 Q12, it takes a few days to build up to effective levels. And so it doesn't work very fast. And so the patient can get worse before they get better, even though it's sensitive. So you need to give high doses. That's why I always recommend giving the loading dose in the ED of 200. Some people would even give loading doses twice, like 12 hours apart. At 200 now, and then you give the prescription, take two of those at home in 12 hours, then one Q12. And that probably works better. There's one article that actually talks about doing that up to 48 hours. Yeah, the, the best one is that's been studied take it for five half-lives, which is five doses. But the problem is people often can't tolerate the, uh, the vomiting. Yeah. So it, I mentioned, you look at my last lecture on febrile travelers. Doxy is the treatment of choice for a lot of infections. Rickettsia, Ehrlichia, Plague, Tularemia, Brucella, Leptospiro, some of the Vibrios, Plasmodium, even malaria is often treated with doxycycline. <laughs> the bite infections, Pastorella from cat and dog bites, even Legionella, Borrelia, Lyme disease, anthrax, it's an alternative. It's an alternative, right, to Cipro. And chlamydia and mycoplasma. So it, it's very active against unusual infections you get from the field and stream. Um, mentioned we have minocycline on the formulary, and books show that it's actually better. It's more active against staph, but it has more, it causes vertigo. Um, but remember the lab, slip, lab tests only for tetracycline susceptibility. So if it's resistant to tetracycline, it still could be sensitive to doxy, and there's no way to know it. And this is important. There's two antibiotics. Careful, this might be on a quiz later. There's two antibiotics which commonly cause esophageal ulcers, you, even after one dose. If you don't take it with a lot of water and it gets <coughs> stuck there, a capsule, it's a capsule that dissolves in your esophagus, or you lie down right after taking it. Doxycycline is one of those. And so we've had patients come in 
a young adult with acute severe chest pains, the worst pain they've ever had, 10 out of 10 chest pain right here, right over their esophagus. It may not be related to swallowing. And they get admitted to the chest pain unit if they're old enough. And it's a doxycycline-induced ulcer. You've got to ask them, oh, have you been a doxycycline? Yeah. Did you take a lots of water? No, I took it with one gulp and I laid down right away. And they had a big ulcer in their esophagus. It usually doesn't bleed. There's one other antibiotic that causes that, so listen carefully to which one that is. It's commonly prescribed. <laughs> Remember for the quiz, okay? So it could make you look good in the chest pain unit. If you're admitting a patient chest pain unit, 25-year-old adult, yeah, I got uh, doxycycline last week for my chlamydia, and I didn't take it with much water, and I laid down. It's probably <laughs> an esophageal ulcer from that. So Bactrim, we used to use this very commonly for... Uh, and uh, any doctor that would treat kids over 20 years ago knows that the, the, one of the first drugs we get for people, besides amoxicillin, is oral Bactrim or, trimet or trimethamine sulfa suspension. And now there's too much resistance, but it used to be very commonly prescribed. And every doctor would know off the top of their head the dose for every kid. You just eyeball the kid and say, this is going to be this dose, because you use it every day. You'd be writing prescriptions for this. If you couldn't give amoxicillin, you'd be giving this oral suspension, which only comes in one strength of oral suspension. Now, we're using more and more of it because over 98% of our MRSA are sensitive to it. It's sensitive doesn't mean it's going to work. So it does work in most cases for MRSA if it's not in the blood, usually. But it's not as active as the beta-lactams if it's a beta-lactam-sensitive staph. So if you have a sensitivity back for a staph and it's not... MRSA, don't keep giving Bactrim. They should be switched over to Keflex or Dicloxacillin or even clindamycin. Uh, e. coli is developing a lot of resistance, so we don't often use it empirically for UTIs. For some children, though, they might have a low rate of getting E. coli resistant. You might consider it a choice for a pyelonephritis. Uh, pneumococci are getting resistant, so you don't use it for pneumonia anymore. You used to use it commonly for pneumonia. Uh, it's active against bite wound infections, so I turn it to penicillin against pastoral maltocida. It's good for pneumocystis for the AIDS patients. But remember, group A strep is resistant. So you never want to use this solely for someone with cellulitis, which could be group A strep or staph. If you have big abscesses with cellulitis, it's not a strep. So you're probably safe. If you have some abscesses, other than little pustules, big abscesses with cellulitis, it's probably one germ. It's probably MRSA or MSSA. And you could probably get away with giving this to a penicillin allergic patient or something. But uh, don't give them, if they just have cellulitis, it still could be MRSA or strep, don't give this drug as the only drug. But remember, it has lots of side effects. The sulfamethoxazole interacts with lots of drugs. Okay? And it's very important clinically. And also, there's side effects which aren't necessarily drug interactions too. Trimethoprim inhibits renal excretion of potassium, which doesn't affect a normal person. But if you have a creatinine of like 1.8 and you get this drug, you can be coming with hyperkalemia. If you have a normal creatinine, uh, but you're on, or if you're a diabetic, normal creatinine, if you're on another, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, which retains potassium and you give trimethoprim, you can come in with severe hyperkalemia. We've seen, I see several cases on my own shifts every year with that. <clears throat> um, one of the worst things, though, is you're getting uh, Stephen Johnson syndrome, or ethylene multiforming, or TEN. Even oral drops of sulfa have caused fatal Stephen Johnson syndrome. So it's not too common, but when you see one case, you probably would say, I'm not prescribing Bactrim for a while, because I've seen this before with mild infections. So I'd probably give it for more serious infections. Now, drug interactions are very important. So if you order this now in electronic ordering, the pharmacist would, would know what the patient's on, so they wouldn't let you make a mistake. 
Uh, and supposedly, if you write a prescription, the pharmacist shouldn't either. But it does interact directly with warfarin and cause bleeding. If you're on sulfonylureas, it elevates the level of sulfonylurea, and you get hypoglycemia. If you're on phenytoin, it increases the phenytoin concentration, you can get lethargy and ataxia from toxicity. And if you're on cyclosporin, it decreases the level of cyclosporin. This is the sulfa doing this. And so you can get rejection of your transplant. A few words on the floor. Yes? So all the attendings seem to be different on their treatment of that. Uh, all patient comes in with some sort of cellulitis you're going to send home and you want to cover for community-acquired MRSA. Yeah. What is a good... There are several regimens recommended, so Bactrim is one, but you have to give it with a streptococcal drug. So you would have to give it with, you could give, um, you could give amoxicillin or Keflex or Augmentin or Clinda, but you, then you'd have to give it with the, with the Bactrim to cover strep. Doxy doesn't cover strep. That's the same, you could give Doxy instead of the Bactrim. Yes. Uh -huh. So the quinolones, now remember these are very good for infections which they're sensitive, but they cause a lot of side effects. There's lots of drug interactions, a lot of toxic effects, especially tendon ruptures, spontaneous tendon ruptures from one single dose in an elderly person. Um, and there's a lot of lawsuits against drug companies for making this drug. If you watch daytime television on cable, which I have when I'm exercising or something, you get these commercials for the law firms. Have you taken Cipro or Levofloxacin in the past? year and had a tendon rupture and you're over 75, call us right now, we'll make you a lot of money. They're suing the drug company because this drug's on the market and it, it, it's, it causes uh, tendon rupture, the quinolones. All do it, but Cipro's the worst, maybe because it's more prescribed. But um, this, remember this, the single most common cause of Achilles tendon rupture, non-traumatic in the United States is Cipro. Non-traumatic. Most people get it, young people get jumping from basketball or something, but it can occur just spontaneously. The single most common cause is Cipro. It weakens your, your tendons, okay? And one dose can do it. One dose. It's usually longer. And it's more likely in the elderly because they have bad tendons anyway. And if they're on corticosteroids, it's even more likely. Um, so these are all pretty similar in their antibiotic susceptibility, except for Cipro doesn't cover gram-positive as well. And moxifloxacin covers anaerobes. We don't have this on the formulary because it's more expensive. So they're very active against atypical bacteria, Legionella and Chlamydia. They're often good for infections from the field and streams as an alternative. Some of the things like plague and tularemia and so forth are sensitive to these. Uh, but gonococci in Hawaii and California are getting resistant. Maybe it's 15 or 20 percent resistance. And so we don't commonly give uh, levofloxacin or Cipro for diarrhea anymore, which you used to give in ED. Um, and also, I wouldn't recommend using it for soft tissue infections to cover the ground positives. If you're going to give it for a, a, a multi-bacterial uh, etiology soft tissue infection, like a diabetic <coughs> foot infection, you're only doing this to cover the gram negatives. You need to add something else for the ground positives or the MSA, MSSA or MRSA or strep. So there's lots of uh, drug interactions with Cipro, too. I'll mention on the next slide. Drug interactions. So the quinolones, especially Cipro, and trimethyrm sulfa, beware of drug-drug drug interactions that are very clinically significant, especially Cipro with many drugs. And this is in the hand, and I won't go over it in much detail. Aminoglycosides, I think I'm getting close here to the end. Um, there's three of them we have on the form. They're all cheap and unrestricted because they're so cheap. 
even though overuse of amikacin can induce resistance, but I think there's a shortage of amikacin, drug shortage. They're generic, they're very inexpensive. These are great in the ED for IV or IM use, especially genomycin, because it's very inexpensive. It costs 20 cents for a dose, and for a young person, a single dose is really safe, no matter what the <coughs> dose is. Um, and you could give it IM, and it very, it's very concentrated. It's 40 milligrams in ML, so if you give it 120 mLs, it's only like 33 mLs. You can give it IM for pylo, and it, it's highly concentrated in the kidney tissue. So even though it's out of the blood in a day at the standard dose, um, the half-life's maybe two to four hours, it's actually, you can find it in the urine for weeks after a single dose. <laughs> so this is not in the books. Uh, young woman with acute cystitis, you don't think it's pylo. They usually get a, what do, they, what do we usually treat them with? Acute uncomplicated cystitis. Three days of Cipro or Bactrim, but not usually because it's resistant. Keflex, for how long? Five to seven. Macrodatin, five to seven. Uh, Augmentin, five to seven. The only ones you can give for three days is the quinolones or Bactrim if it's sensitive, that's been shown. But single-dose genomycin in the old days, when this was a brand name, it was well-studied for acute uncompensated. Single-dose cures, cures as many as seven days of an antibiotic orally. So I've had single young women here who were, not single women, but young women who seemed unlike they're <laughs> unlikely to take their, they're unlikely to take their antibiotics or can't afford it or you seem like they're not going to understand things. I've given them a single dose of genomycin IM, <laughs> but I got a urine culture just in case. They're, you could consider them cured of cystitis, okay? One thing that's not even in the books, even in the ID books anymore, but it's well known, is that a single-dose genomycin is very effective for uncomplicated gonorrhea. Um, and nobody seems to know this except old ID specialists, when there were many studies showing that genomycin is, is very useful for gonorrhea if, someone has, if they have resistant infection. In fact, it's still widely used in tropical countries where there's a lot of resistance where people get numbers over the counter, single dose genomycin, one dose for uncomplicated gonorrhea is very effective. So if you have to give somebody genomycin for something else, or you're, the differential is like gonorrhea versus pilo or something, and you don't want to treat them separately with ceftriaxone, and there's resistance developing the ceftriaxone, by the way, <coughs> you could give single dose genomycin. Unfortunately, you can't get the higher dose. You have to give like 240 milligrams, which may be about the upper limit for one IM dose. You might have to split it or give it IV. But you won't need anything else at home for that. Okay, vancomycin. We're commonly using this. In fact, vancomycin is now the most prescribed antibiotic in U.S. hospitals uh, in, in, in inpatient care. It's the most prescribed antibiotic. It's very inexpensive because it's generic. There's a disadvantage to that. I'll show you later why generic vanco is not very good. Uh, it's an inferior drug for staph aureus. The reason we use vanco is because of MRSA, not because it works better for staph. So if you have staphylococcal endocarditis, the worst, like most life-threatening staph aureus infection, <coughs> you always want to give them nafcillin if it's sensitive to methicillin. Vancomycin has a much higher mortality rate. It's not a good drug. It's, we use it because there's no alternative for MRSA, for IV use, except for a few other ones which are more expensive. Now what's interesting is the generic formulation which UCI buys because they get all their drugs through Cardinal Health, one of the big distributors, which only has the generic version of IV vancomycin. So they've shown this doesn't work as well as the brand name. And it has more toxicity. So the true, true brand name vancomycin is very pure 
and has no nephrotoxicity. Unlike when it first came out in the 50s, it was called Mississippi mud because it was brown and it caused lots of nephrotoxicity, not from the drug itself. So pure uh, brand name vancomycin has no nephrotoxicity. It's not a nephrotoxic drug. It's the impurities in it that cause nephrotoxicity. So the brand name also is very potent. Generic vancomycin has been shown in the mouse MRSA thigh mouse model. It doesn't work very well compared to the brand name, IV. Uh, we don't know how it works in humans. And also, generic formulations don't have the same potency or they have any impurities. And so there is no nephrotoxicity from generic vancomycin. <clears throat> and UCI is not able to buy the brand name because Cardinal Health only supplies the generic. So when you read a book and it says vancomycin is not nephrotoxic, that's only the brand name product. And to say that it's going to work really well, you don't believe it because the generic is not very potent, which means you've got to give high doses because you're not sure where you really have a potent vanco. Uh, remember, red band syndrome is an allergic reaction. It's not an allergic reaction, but a toxic reaction to rapid infusion. It's a histamine release. So you need prolonged infusion times. You probably can't give more than a 500 milligrams in an hour, I think, maybe, maybe 750. So in the ED, if you're going to use Vanco, it means you've got a pretty serious infection, always use the highest dose possible. So the minimum dose you should be using initially is 15 milligrams per kilogram. And it's water-soluble, so if they're fat, you have to add like one-third of the body weight for the fat weight. You can, the pharmacist can tell you over the phone. So you can give much higher doses than this. And for serious infections, 20 milligrams per kilogram for the first dose, even for the later doses, is fine. But it requires infusion over several hours. Uh, but remember the one gram dose? Remember this for the quiz, maybe. One gram every 12 hours is not a standard dose for Vanco, unless you're only treating small people, because it's weight-based. And it's not very potent, like the brand name. Uh, talked about that. And clindamycin. The important point about clindamycin here is that it, many bacteroides fragilis and some gram-positive anaerobes are getting resistant to it maybe 20%. So it's not, if you have a really life-threatening anaerobic infection, don't use clindamycin. Use a metronidazole or a beta-lactam like ampsilbactam or piptazo. So what's the good thing about this for soft tissue infection? It stops toxin production in toxin-producing bacteria that are sensitive to it, especially group A staph and probably staph aureus. Uh, it's well-absorbed orally, high tissue levels, could give it three, time, three or four times a day, but don't use it for meningitis. It doesn't get into the brain. And you don't need any dose reduction or renal failure because it's metabolized by the liver. But you can get severe reaction, including Stephen Johnson syndrome from it all. It's not as likely for, as from sulfa or maybe from Cipro. But here's the other one, esophageal ulcers. This is like that, what was the other drug I mentioned that causes that? Doxycycline. So you can get fooled. Patients admitted to the chest pain for chest pain, and the next doctor is the one that figures out they were on uh, Clinda or Doxy and took it with only a small amount of water and didn't and laid down right away, and it's stuck in their esophagus. This is usually a capsule uh, like the Doxy, so it can dissolve, the capsule can dissolve in your esophagus. The there are pills, it might be a little different. The pills might not dissolve as easily. The, um, so it's, but don't give this to older children. Sometimes you get an ENT consult or ortho consult for some soft tissue infection or mouth infection. On a nine-year-old, they want to prescribe oral clindamycin suspension. Don't do it. It's too dilute. It's 75 milligrams or 5 mL. It's one of the worst-tasting antibiotics. And how much would you have to give somebody who's a nine-year-old? Perhaps 300 milligrams a dose, and that's like 20 mL, so like three forms a day. These kids are not going to take 
20 mLs of something that tastes bad three or four times a day. So unless it's a little tiny kid, I wouldn't prescribe oral clindamycin unless there's no alternative. Uh, and you can give it in the IM and the ED, as I mentioned earlier. Nitrofurantoin, we usually use it for uncomplicated cystitis. Don't use it for pylo because it doesn't have any good levels in the kidney or the blood. But it's a good empiric agent for lower UTIs because there's very little resistance. It's over 90% of bugs are sensitive, although there are resistant organisms, but it's usually pretty safe. And it doesn't work in a three-day course for cystitis. You need five to seven days. Otic antibiotics. Still power outage, huh? Sounds <laughs> late. Huh? <laughs> Hope we're on internal disaster scan over there. So what about if you have otitis media that's perforated? There's no reason to give an oral antibiotic, although you can. But topical quinolones get into the middle ear of perforated, and they have the same cure rate as oral amoxicillin or augmentin. Okay? Uh, but it's also good for otitis extorta. But don't use it for otitis media unless they have a perforation. It has to get in the middle ear. Uh, ophthalmic antimicrobials. I'd say for many years of experience, I would probably always go with ointments for infants and young children. <clears throat> By the time they're an older child, teenager, or adult, you should go with drops. Uh, adults don't like the ointments because they make their vision blurry from the petroleum base for a long time. Uh, they don't work any better. Uh, with an ointment for a child, you don't actually have to give it in the eye. You can just put the ointment strip ribbon of the ointment on the eyelashes and it dissolves in the eyes if you want. So, uh, and always use bacitracin when their ophthalmologist says to use erythromycin, just don't tell them anything, just write the prescription for bacitracin instead. <laughs> it works much better. <laughs> um, for solutions for adults, low cost is polytrim generic, polymyxin trimethrim. It's low cost, it's very safe, it's pretty broad spectrum. Uh, if they have infections related to contact lenses though, when you have pseudomonas or something, you really need to go to a quinolone and the problem is the ophthalmologists are often recommending these very expensive quinolones to our patients with MSI or Medi-Cal, and they're not covered, and so they don't even get anything. So <clears throat> you've got to check with the patient's health plan when the ophthalmologist says to prescribe Vigamox or Zymar for this patient with a contact lens-associated uh, conjunctivitis or whatever it is, or, or ulcer, uh, and you better supply it to the patient. We actually have one of these two was on our formula, I can't remember. You can actually write an order for it one drop now and they deliver the whole bottle and the doctor can give them the rest of it. So uh, it's often not even covered by their Aetna insurance. So if you're gonna have to pay for it, you might well go with the Cipro and the Ophloxacin, which are lower cost, but they're only moderate cost, so it might be $50 a bottle versus 200 for one of these. Uh, the last slide here. So newer drugs for, res for resistant staph infections. Many of you have seen me use daptomycin in the IV and IV the ED for serious staph infections, MRSA. It's restricted, so you can't write for it unless you call the ID special, but it's very useful. It could be very useful in emergency medicine because at one dose a day of six milligrams per kilogram, which is the same dose you give for staph endocarditis, it lasts 24 hours. It's highly active against all streptococci, MRSA, MSSA, and it stops toxin production probably by the bacteria, but it can't be used for pneumonia because it's activized surpactin. So once a day, I've had a couple patients come back three days in a row and get it every day.